Hello and welcome to the Oxford Policy Podcast. I'm Maeve Collins-Tobin and I'll be your host. Today I'm joined by Kaya Axelson to discuss net zero policymaking. What net zero policy is, what frameworks can be used to develop net zero strategies, hear about Kaya's ongoing projects, and much more. Kaya is a research fellow and the head of policy and partnerships at Oxford Net Zero, an interdisciplinary climate change mitigation research program at the University of Oxford. Kaya earned a distinction for her research on politically unlikely renewable energy coalitions. Her current research is on the emerging net zero policy landscape. She has recently served as a strategic advisor to the UN-backed Race to Zero campaign and as a technical author on the International Standard Organization's new net zero guidelines. With 15 years of experience in social and environmental sustainability, Kaya speaks and consults regularly for organizations and initiatives on their climate strategies. We're so lucky to have her on the show today to share her expertise. Welcome, Kaya. It's great to have you. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. So I thought it would be great to start by just defining what is net zero. Hmm. Net zero is a scientific term that we use to explain the fact that we've basically gone too far, right? Um, If we had begun our emissions reduction journey globally maybe 20 years ago, we wouldn't have this overshoot of what kind of the world has deemed a globally acceptable temperature uh, increase for us. Um, You know, every degree of temperature is unacceptable from the perspective of valuing every life. But globally, we've said we are not interested in going above 1.5 or 2 degrees. And at this point, about every model that kind of the world's best scientists can come up with shows that we are going to need to start removing, uh, investing in carbon sinks and then storing carbon over the long term in order to meet and sustain a balance that is safe within those temperature targets. So it's a term that comes from science, but it's of course political. And then how you define that responsibility for organizations and governments at every level is part of our work. I think that's a great segue for you to tell me about your work um, and research with Oxford Net Zero. Yeah, so why I love my job is I get to take this kind of powerful science, not just on the definition of net zero from a physics perspective, but also on credible pathways to get there, whether that be economics, kind of legal tools we have, governance, um, kind of our our incredible research on the, the power and value of nature in this process. I take all of that and I talk to practitioners to help them inform their strategies the end of the day, a lot of the world, you know, 90% of the world, according to our tracking, has signed up to some form of net zero commitment. Um, and there's a lot of really important criticism and skepticism of that frame coming, interestingly, from both the left and the right, um, from kind of uh, the perspective that, A, it's not enough for us to just hit those targets at an organizational level, and B, thinking such long-term targets can sometimes lead to the moral hazard of uh, delay, people thinking that maybe we don't need to act now. And everything we're seeing about, 
you know, all of our chances of meeting that target means that acting now is imperative. And so that's one of the kind of loopholes in net zero strategies that we help to close is helping people make those interim plans and targets. Um, but our work is with civil society organizations, with businesses, with governments, and um, it's really intersectional in that way. Hmm. Yeah, I think that also speaks to how net zero policy looks like a lot of different things. Like you said, um, strategies for businesses, but also for governments, for organizations. And I thought it would be good to narrow in on government policy specifically. So um, in your from your perspective, what are the main policy gaps when it comes to net zero? And what are the main challenges to getting countries to embed net zero into law? It's a really good question, and I'm going to um, reframe it to myself because we track a lot of policies, um, and but every political economy is different. Um, and so I think I'll start by saying that the, the main gap I see is um, moral courage in governments and capacity in governments to take this challenge on in earnest. Um, and I think moral courage and political constraint kind of are two sides of the same coin. So what I mean is that almost every single uh, government um, has this incredible governance opportunity and challenge of embedding the path to a credible kind of uh, climate action to, to their target in every agency. I'll just give an example of why that's important and why this is a structural challenge and not just a policy challenge. It's not like you can just put in five separate policies and then you're good. It's a real kind of uh, public administration question. So um, let's say I want companies to have stricter net zero pathways and targets. Um, I could go and set a procurement policy with governments. And that would be really great lever because that's kind of governments just putting their money where their mouth is. And I set out a list of requirements and governments do have this on a range of topics, whether that be human rights for kind of what they, what they buy from, what, whether that be kind of nature. And so there's a precedent to set a procurement policy. But then another department in the government is going to um, say, you know what, I, um, I'm actually going to work with financial regulators and, I, and I'm going to think about um, how we set a requirement. And maybe they set a slightly different requirement. And then the companies are getting the same kind of similar asks, similar aims, but framed slightly differently from two different government departments. So you almost need an agency within every government that is going across departments uh, and making sure that the requirements on companies to align to net zero or to align to the climate commitment that the government has is interoperable, helpful to businesses, and uh, informed by best practice. So that would be the main gap I would point to is government capacity and kind of a cross-cutting agency that's empowered and has kind of uh, connections to the political side of government, um, which is a lot to ask, but it's also a really exciting opportunity to innovate coordination within government. That's super informative to think of all the overlapping mandates and decisions that need to be coordinated on top of just policy design. You contributed to an article published in Nature Climate Change in 2021 called The Meaning of Net Zero and How to Get It Right. 
that argues a good net zero strategy is guided by three principles. The first is urgency, so making sure it starts immediately and covers all sectors. The second was integrity, so ensuring that uh, companies and organizations are actually reducing their emissions rather than just offsetting. Um, and the third was consistency with other sustainable development objectives, meaning that net zero strategies need to be aligned with other environmental, social, and economic goals. Um, so I wanted to ask, um, in the years since you've written this, do you see strategies moving this way? And do you have any additional thoughts on what distinguishes a good net zero strategy from a bad one? Yeah, um, this article was the first thing we did at Oxford Net Zero. You can imagine that pulling together, um, you know, we I think we have 45 different academics across our, you know, our um, different programs. And so Sam Fankhauser is the lead author on this article, and he did an amazing job kind of pulling us all together and, and summarizing what is most important about net zero integrity. Because as I said, net zero integrity is not a given, and we see a lot of... Uh, mockery of net zero in the landscape, um, whether that be by the private or the public sector. So, so it really highlighted our concerns. And what I'd like to say when I'm speaking to give people something they might remember quickly at a dinner table, I think sometimes our opportunities to engage come up when we least expect. So I use an acronym. And if you're sitting there and you're talking to an organization or a government about their net zero strategy, you might consider um, scoring them. So the acronym is SCORE across sort of five uh, criteria that sit underneath the criteria that you just mentioned or the principles that you just mentioned. Um, so the first one, again, is you know short-term and interim targets. You want to ask them about their targets uh, in the next couple of years and how those fit with the science of, say, the need to end deforestation by 2025, um, as an example. Coverage uh, for the C, that's uh, coverage of all greenhouse gases. You know, we have to keep in mind that CO2 is, of course, a long-term and, and big climate forcer. It takes up a lot of attention, but methane is very potent if short-lived in the atmosphere. So coverage of all gases, but then coverage of all scopes. So um, where you draw the boundary around the responsibility for emissions. A lot of the time, 80% of a company's net zero uh, kind of target or commitment um, will not be, uh, or 80% of emissions will not be covered by a company's net zero target because they're in scope three and they leave scope three out of the picture. Now, scope three is difficult and complicated because, you know, there's shared responsibility in scope three, but that's really one to look out for. Offsetting is the O. So if you are looking to, again, uh, looking at the integrity of net zero, you want to ask, you know, is your offsetting strategy aligned with the science of what it takes to sustain a net zero balance? Is it investing in permanent long-term removals? And unfortunately, most of the carbon credits out there um, don't have any removals in them at all. And a lot of the avoided emissions credits are overcredited, which means that they're not delivering on the climate benefits that they should be. So that's a real, um, a real issue. And even though carbon markets are kind of an efficient way to get financing across the table and probably an important way to do so, we have a lot of work to do to make that credible. R refers to reporting and governance and whether the kind of organization has real accountability to different stakeholders, the public, investors. Um, and E refers to that final principle, um, equity, and 
what we found in the net zero tracker, which you can look to if you are looking up a company and just want a quick overview, is that um, most uh, most companies, unfortunately, don't have equity baked into their net zero strategies, despite the intense kind of human labor costs that will be involved in transitioning. Hmm. And what, um, what would equity look like? Could you give some specific uh, policy examples? Yeah, something that I've that's been playing on my mind a lot recently is um, conflict minerals and renewable energy. And uh, this speaks to a lot of, say, some of the valid um, concerns being brought by the right wing at the moment um, on net zero strategies. There's a recent report that just came out on the sort of new forms of climate denial. Um, and uh, it people are not so much attacking um, climate change as to whether it exists or not, but they're talking about the policies and the solutions and kind of going in on those. And unfortunately, there are quite a lot of very valid concerns about the way that, you know, we source um, certain conflict materials for renewable energy. Fortunately, thanks to, you know, technological innovation, we may have um, sodium ion batteries soon, and that will help quite a lot. But, um, but that's a really good example of a human rights issue and a kind of green transition issue coming into play with each other, one, one that we should take really seriously because we cannot reinforce the same systems of oppression that have existed in the fossil extractive industry. Mm-hmm. I think this also ties in with the principle of environmental justice. Marginalized people are disproportionately burdened by the climate crisis, but at the same time, climate policies have to be designed to ensure they don't reinforce those same systems of oppression, like you mentioned. I think that we have delved into the government side, and I'd love to also um, talk about non-state actors like companies and organizations. And you worked on the UN-backed Race to Zero campaign which is a global campaign rallying non-state actors to take action to have global emissions by 2050. I'm wondering if you could speak to um, your role advising the campaign. Yeah, that was such a rush. I love campaigns. I'm, I started campaigning since I was a child, basically. And there are certain moments where you feel a landscape or a movement taking off and coming together. And that was definitely one of them. Um, this was a UN-backed but separate initiative. And I think that's a really important thing to draw out. Sometimes the things that catalyze the most progress in our ecosystem don't exist just within one institution, right? This was a campaign that was brought together and it was supported. It was given the legitimacy and authority by the UN, but it worked across regions, cities, uh, states, companies, financial sector. And it brought everyone together under this one umbrella that says we are all going to the same place in support of the Paris Agreement target, and let's align on some core principles. And so they brought all of these different initiatives and actors together, whether that was the sort of various C40 or, you know, Council of Mayors, Cities Networks, they came together under one banner, which was the Race to Zero Cities Initiative, which came under the banner of the Race to Zero, whether that was the 15 different kind of corporate pledges out there. People were getting pledge-itis. And so this really helped like narrow down, okay, here's the ones that are credible and here's the ones that work with the race to zero. Um, whether that be the financial uh, regulators or the financial 
voluntary initiatives kind of weighing in and saying, you know, this is what's acceptable to us. And it was hard. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Like it is not easy to get consensus across that many stakeholder groups. And I think that's what makes it such a remarkable initiative. Um, and I wouldn't say that there was perfect agreement on the criteria. So we helped to bring together different stakeholder groups through consultations. We had to get that going kind of fairly quickly. Um, and so we, we act as sort of independent conveners, but there were many, many others involved in the process. Um, and what I learned was that sometimes even if agreement is not perfect in these broad coalition building exercises, the momentum you create on pointing the direction can still take off and can still really have a huge impact and trickle down effect of people figuring out their plans. You know, now if you try to hire someone in the sustainability landscape today, it's almost impossible. Like <laughs> the market, everyone is hiring for someone to help them deliver on their scope three commitment. That was not true five years ago. People barely had scope three commitments. So it's really inspiring to me to look back at that, the success of that campaign as a mobilization tool, acknowledging that the integrity and accountability for those commitments is still an ongoing process and that brings back in the role of government. Mm. And so are you optimistic um, then when you look at how non-state actors are um, like joining in and setting their own strategies or do you still feel like there's so much work to be done? What makes me optimistic is our tracking of government action and our finding that regulation uh, across Kind of, we looked at five key domains, uh, policy domains, areas which governments could use to regulate towards net zero. And we found uh, significant um, action across all those domains and key jurisdictions across the G20. Do I wish that those policies were in place 15, 20 years ago? Yes, it's sometimes it feels like it's too little too late if you think about the devastation that's already occurring. And sometimes I look and I'm like, oh, great. We just managed to sort out disclosure and even that has work to do. That's the starting line. Just disclosing your emissions and your transition plans is the very first step. And so there is, if I'm, if I'm being honest, a kind of flutter in my heart of urgency about us um, accelerating the policy process, but I do think that we will see faster movement from governments um, in the next few years than we have seen over the last 20. And what we need to make sure is as we see that accelerated movement, we reduce backlash by improving interoperability across those policies and making sure those policy design processes are inclusive and especially inclusive of, of those who are in kind of least capacity contexts who um, going net zero is not the same for them as going net zero in, say, the global north or a really high income setting. Yeah. And do you think there is a responsibility of the global north to help um, other states who have less capa capacity to transition to aid them with that? Undoubtedly. And that's why I'm really heartened by the um, increased focus on adaptation funding and loss and damage funding um, focus, not necessarily funding delivered yet. Um, but I also really understand the domestic policy constraints um, and, and the political, domestic kind of political constraints of actors trying to uh, increase that funding um, and also work within the national political contexts that they do. And I think what there are some things, though, that um, just through good policy design, 
um, and in inclusive processes um, won't necessarily cost a huge amount. And there's other areas where we just need people and countries and companies to help cough up the money. Mm. Um, I think it's been so interesting hearing you talk about all the different elements um, and challenges that come with net zero policy, whether it be the coordination, the coordination across government departments, um, making sure it's intersectional and engages in equity, um, the SCORE principles you talked about, making sure you also have government setting their companies, setting their own standards. Um, and then, like you said, it's also, it's not just domestically, it's also this international issue. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering um, for future policy students and policymakers who may be listening, um, what would be your message to them? My message to future policymakers and students and just citizens of the world is um, that courage is the, the most important skill that we have in this work. Um, and that careful courage, you know, that sounds like an oxymoron, but courage that is backed by research, thought, considerations of your um, of another party's constraints um, or motives um, is really lacking. I work with so many people who are just doing their jobs and just doing our job is not enough on climate and human rights and poverty. We have to do so much more, and I think it makes our lives so much better when we wake up and get out of the bed with a sense of uh, moral courage and creativity that no is not acceptable um, in terms of moving forward on these key issues. Mm. Um, I'd like to turn to something more local now and ask, how do you think universities like Oxford can positively shape climate policy? Universities like Oxford, for better or for worse, have, I think, an outsized role in society as perceived independent actors um, and sort of arbiters of, like, truth or new knowledge. Now, whether or not you disagree or agree with that characterization, it is a role that I see that we can play one way that I think universities can um, do this is to convene in the spaces between institutional mandate. So good example, um, corporate actors might not be able to bring together other corporate actors um, to say, hey, I think we really need to think about our supply chain in this sector differently. That's where I think university research groups um, as part of their research or as part of their engagement plan can sometimes just host a meeting. And sometimes just hosting a meeting and then letting them run is enough. And sometimes seeing that all the way through and guiding and doing the, being that vector for the collective knowledge and also kind of just bringing in that spirit of curiosity to say, what if we did things a little bit differently? What would it look like if we were to work backwards from the vision or the mission that we all have as to the world we want to see. That's the type of thinking that universities can bring to spaces where actors are otherwise constrained, understandably, by their mandates or by their fiduciary duty or by politics. 
And I think that we don't use that enough. I would like to see every research team in every university have a kind of engagement or impact um, wing, sort of like a little jetpack onto their research to help people ask the questions that the research team is asking so it doesn't just end in end up in a journal article on a shelf somewhere. Um, I see universities as like in a very idealistic way, like one of the places that we have protected in society for free thought and challenging thought. And I'm, I feel so lucky every single day to wake up and work for a university. That's amazing. Thank you. Um, that was my last question. Is there anything else that you'd like to add or final thoughts? Yeah, I just want to thank everyone who comes through these halls and we're, we're looking out at the beautiful landscape at, at BSG and, um, just the cohorts that I've seen come through here and the kind of thoughtful questions that they ask every year and then the work I see them go on to do in their day jobs um, afterwards, like it just, it gives me so much hope. And so, yeah, thanks for all the work that you do. And if you bring any kind of uh, climate integrity uh, lessons or thoughts into that, um, uh, to that work, then um just know you've got like a whole cheering squad behind you uh, among us who have stuck stuck around the university side. Thanks so much, Kaya. <laughs>